Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Welcome back to Republicans Defeating Trump for our June 26th weekly roundup. I'm Ron Steslow. Joining me on our panel today are three of our co-founders, independent political strategist Reed Galen and our captain on this voyage. Hello, Reed. Hi, Ron. Communication strategist and former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, Jennifer Horn. Good morning, Jennifer. Hey, Ron. Good morning. And dialing in by phone today because we really wanted his take on the news is conservative attorney George Conway. George, it's great to have you again. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Ron. Happy to be here. On today's episode, we'll cover a standoff between the Attorney General and the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Trump announcing that he asked his staff to slow down coronavirus testing during this speech in Tulsa last Saturday, and ongoing tensions over mail-in voting. In our A Block, we're going to talk about Berman and Barr. So there's been a lot of news out of the Department of Justice this week. Last weekend, there was a clash between Attorney General Bill Barr and now the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Jeffrey Berman. On Friday, Barr's office put out a statement that Berman was stepping down from his position. Shortly afterward, Berman put out his own statement that he had not resigned and had no intention of doing so. And on Saturday, Barr wrote a letter to Berman stating that Trump had fired the prosecutor. Although the president denied he was involved, Berman stepped down from his office. So while Berman was U.S. attorney, his office investigated Trump's allies, including Michael Cohen, for his role in paying women who had alleged affairs with Trump, Trump's personal attorney and former New York City mayor, Rudy Giuliani, and the finances of the Trump inaugural committee, as well as indicted Jeffrey Epstein. George, could you please walk us through why Barr and Trump would want to remove Berman from the SDNY and what this can mean between now and November? The reason why he'd want to get rid of the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York is precisely because of the investigations you described. Not so much Cohen. Cohen is sort of under, he's already in prison, although after Trump leaves office, there's a possibility of prosecution of Trump for the very crime that that U.S. attorney's office said Trump directed Cohen to commit, which was a campaign finance violation relating to the hush money payoffs to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. But there are other investigations, as you mentioned. There's the question of what exactly Rudy Giuliani was doing in Ukraine and the money he was receiving from Ukrainian interests. And there is the Trump inaugural investigation. And there's also potentially, if they cooperate with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, there could be an investigation of the Trump, the tax, I was going to say Trump dodging, but tax dodging uh, tactics of the Trump organization, which is something that's state prosecutor in Manhattan is investigating. And the subpoena from that prosecutor is being litigated by Trump in the Supreme Court right now. And the decision could come down any day now. So there's a lot of reason for Trump to be concerned about what's going on in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, Manhattan, which is a very, very unique prosecutor's office in that it is considered to be the most independent, the most competent prosecutor's office in the nation. And it has a sterling reputation for staying above politics. And so what we have here is the attorney general who has been acting in so many ways as the personal attorney, the Roy Cohn for Donald Trump. He's done that in 
distorting and misleading the public about the what content of the Mueller report before it was released. He's done that by conducting a bizarre, a bizarre secret investigation of the origins of the Russia probe. That has, you know, we have yet to see exactly what that's about. But Barr was personally flying around the world doing that. We've got that. We've got his interference, Barr's interference with the Flynn prosecution, trying to basically dismiss the Flynn prosecution, even though Flynn has pleaded guilty and the evidence overwhelmingly shows that he's guilty. He pled guilty twice. We've got his interference with the Roger Stone investigation and where he tried to override line prosecutors' uh, recommendations for a sentence for Stone. It naturally leads to suspicions when he's trying to dismiss late on a Friday night, the most independent, most important federal prosecutor in the nation who's handling some matters that could affect Trump. And then not only that, Barr lies about it. He says that Berman, the U.S. attorney, is stepping down, implying that he's voluntarily leaving his post, going home, to, going back to private practice on his own. And it turns out Berman says, no, 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 I'm not going anywhere. I don't want to go. And you, you can't fire me. It was the most remarkable thing we've ever seen. And there has yet to be a rational, credible explanation for why Barr was trying to do what he was doing. His only answer has been thus far that he wanted to find a job for the current SEC chairman. His name is Jay Clayton. He's a fine lawyer. And supposedly he wants to go back to New York. Well, you know, he had a big fancy law practice back in New York at a, at a, at a, at a very prominent law firm. But Barr is pretending that he's being a job placement officer and trying to put Clayton in the U.S. attorney slot. But the Clayton is totally, even he's, though he's a good lawyer, is totally unqualified to be a prosecutor. He's a corporate lawyer. He's never been a litigator arguing cases in court. And not only do you, should you be a litigator for that job in the U.S. attorney's office, you should be a former prosecutor. He has zero prosecutorial experience. So the rationale makes no sense. So why would you Five months before an election, when people are going to say, what are you doing on a Friday night, fire a prosecutor who's investigating your boss and then lie about it. Looks pretty suspicious. Yeah. And that's a good segue to something I want to ask Jennifer, which is this isn't the first time the Trump administration has announced a major staff change late on a Friday. Can you, <laughs> Jennifer shaking her head right now, what is their strategy here? Can you unpack that for us? Well, there's not a lot to unpack there. They do it because they hope that the fewest number of people will notice what they're doing. It is an old political, I was going to say strategy, but it's not smart enough to call a strategy. It's an old political ploy. And you know, as a former chairman, I'll tell you, it's what you do when you're chairman of the party. It's what you do when you're a candidate, when you're a sitting elected official and you have bad news. You have something you have to say or do that you just don't want people to notice. You, you do it on a Friday night as everybody has already gone home and they're watching TV with the kids or packing up to go away for the weekend. You know, to George's point, there's only one reason, like the idea that there's a question, gee, why would he do this? He did it because Berman was getting too close to extremely damaging information about the president as he's going into a re-election campaign. There's nothing to unpack. It's obvious. It's so transparent. As I look at this story, the thing that I, I find most concerning about the whole thing that I don't hear a lot of talk about at the moment, although we've heard about it in the past, is the investigation in to Donald Trump's relationship with Deutsche Bank. 
and the billion dollars worth of loans that they gave to Donald Trump at a time when he was not really qualified for those loans and banks weren't giving money away at that time. I've spent 10 years advising um, political activists not to let themselves get dragged down into conspiracy rabbit holes. But the truth is, you know, the concern with all of that is where did the money come from and how did it influence Donald Trump? And we know that there's a significant possibility that the money came from Russia and that he spent the entire 2016 campaign saying, I have no relationship with Russia. They have no influence over me. There is something in Deutsche Bank that Donald Trump is trying to hide. So to me, that is the most, just about the most important issue that the Southern District is looking at. I suspect it is very much why Donald Trump uh, told his uh, attorney general to make this change and why they tried to do it, you know, in the dark of night on a Friday. Reed, I want to turn to you to talk about the shattering of norms here and why Donald Trump is able to get away with something like this without even a whisper of concern from the U.S. Senate, which ought to be really concerned about this. And the Lincoln Project just launched a petition to remove Bill Barr to demand these senators take action. Can you talk a little bit about whether or not you think that we will see anything on that front? Not until Trump leaves office. I think that the most striking thing about Trump's three and a half years in office, among a list of many striking things, is just how easily he and his administration have run roughshod over the institutions, guardrails, traditions of the country, and how little defense uh, those institutions had especially from the Republicans in the United States Senate, as you noted, Ron. And I think that if you go back and you look five months ago now, during the course of the impeachment trial, how they would all come out of the Senate chamber, the Republicans, I mean, crowing about how they had not allowed witnesses and how, you know, they weren't convinced, you know, these smi- you know, Cheshire cat smiles because they knew that they were getting him off the hook, right? And, and that there was going to be a reward for them. Fast forward to today, when the president invokes Bull Connor or George Wallace with looting and shooting and vicious dogs and whatever the Kung flu, whatever the case it might be, they just stare at the reporters blankly when they ask the questions or they do this sort of geriatric shuffle away from you know the microphones. And so I think it's further proof that Trump has corrupted many of our institutions and he certainly corrupted the Republican Party. Reed makes a great point, And I think it's one that we cannot emphasize often enough at the Lincoln Project. Think about those Republican senators coming out of the impeachment process, bragging about the fact that they had undermined the constitutional process. That's what they were doing. They were telling the American people that they were so powerful and so clever that they were able to essentially kick the foundation out from under the Constitution of the United States. And with all of these issues, and and you know, now we come six months forward and we're dealing with this issue of what can only be called corrupt behavior on the part of the attorney general in multiple circumstances. And the American people are sitting at their in front of their TVs at night saying, how does this happen? Where, what, I thought, what happened to checks and balances? How, how does this guy get away with it? And he gets away with it because we have a Republican majority in the Senate who has decided that they have the authority and the ability to kick the foundation out from under the United States Constitution. That's why when my Republican friends come to me and say, hey, I get it on Trump, but why are you going after Republican senators? Do you really want the Democrats to have a majority? I want somebody in that U.S. Senate who has at least a little bit of respect for the Constitution and their obligations as part of that process of checks and balances. In our B block, we're going to talk about COVID-19 testing. 
During his speech in Tulsa last Saturday, Trump said that he urged his staff to slow the testing down in an effort to keep the known number of infections lower. After Trump's team said he meant the comment as a joke, Trump said on Tuesday that he doesn't kid. We also learned this week that the Trump administration is sitting on $14 billion for coronavirus testing and contact tracing. But on Wednesday, NBC News reported that the Trump administration will end federal funding for 13 COVID-19 testing sites at the end of the month, including seven sites in Texas, which has seen a surge in cases. Jennifer, what does the lack of testing mean for Americans around the country? And I know you have had personal experience with this. Make no mistake, when Donald Trump says that he wants to end federal funding for testing, he's making two very clear statements to the people of this country. One, the most important thing to Donald Trump is that he get reelected. What the president of the United States is telling the American people is he does not care. He does not care. He does not care if your 84-year-old mother who has dementia and is ill and has some kind of respiratory disease, he does not care if she has coronavirus or not and whether or not she has caught the disease. He does not care if your child is exposed to it in school. He does not care if you or your husband or your neighbor or anybody else suffers or passes away from the coronavirus. That is the only message that you can get from what this president is saying on this. And when he comes back and doubles down and triples down on it, he's saying, hey, America, pay attention. I'm being as clear as I can. I don't care about you. George, I know you and I talked about this on a previous episode and how the only thing that seems to matter to Donald Trump is himself, his own numbers. Is there anything you want to add to this story? I mean, it just, to me, it seems to just underscore everything we've already talked about, about his personality, about his psyche. He doesn't care. That's absolutely right. He could not possibly feel anyone else's pain. He couldn't feel the pain that you had to feel, Jennifer, dealing with with your sick mother during this horrible crisis. It doesn't mean anything to him. But there's another point here about Trump and his personality which is his mind doesn't accept truth. It doesn't accept the difference between truth and lies and falsity and misperceptions and deceptions and wishful thinking. And so what you get a lot of the times, most of the time from Trump are lies, lying about the Chinese tariffs, lying about this, lying about that, lying about the hurricane. But sometimes you get truth an odd truth comes out every so often, and it's what he feels and what he thinks. And his comments at the rally about wanting to reduce testing because that would keep the number of cases down, that has come out from time to time in his thinking because he actually thinks he can fool people, that he actually thinks that it that what matters to people is the number of cases. That's why he said he didn't want that cruise ship. Remember the cruise ship and that was off the coast of, of, of Northern California and he didn't want it to dock? He didn't care about that. He cared about the numbers just the same way he cares about the stock market. And that's when he tells the truth, when he shows his inhumanity. Mm. And that's one of the most remarkable things about Donald Trump. And that's what he did the other day. And his, his aides were saying, oh, no, no, he was just kidding. He was just kidding. And then he goes, I don't kid because he meant it. Yeah. He does not care. 
And he doesn't actually care whether anyone thinks he cares. Reed, I want to turn to the political dimension of this for a minute, because I think, you know, as of the last tally that I looked at, we're up to over 120,000 deaths in the United States from coronavirus. And that number is only going to continue to climb. When does this begin to affect him politically, that he's actively slowing down, shutting down testing sites for COVID-19 because of the numbers? When does this begin to affect him politically? Well, let me just echo one quick thing about George and, and Jennifer is that, you know, the president emotionally and psychologically is like a little kid who covers his eyes. You know, you can't see me. You can't see me. Like, clearly you can see him, but the little kid doesn't believe you can't, right? They, they believe they're invisible. The president's no different in this regard in that to him, if the number of cases goes down, whatever the methodology to him, he's done something right, because in his mind, whatever exists is truth such as it is. You know, when we say he doesn't care, we're giving him too much credit. He doesn't have the capacity to have an emotional response. And so it's, in effect, literally he doesn't care. But the truth is, is that he is unable to feel those emotions and do anything other than what exists in the sort of bubble of unreality in which he lives. And frankly, he was able to live for decades because he was doing nothing more than trying to warp, you know, the Trump organization to his will. And frankly, he got away with it for three plus years as president because, you know, he was a bore and he was a goofball and he was a joker with the tweets, but the economy was roaring and, you know, people had jobs and the stock market was was going through the roof. But now that's that's all gone. On the political front, I think you should see you should really take a look at Texas, where as of this week, the Trump campaign is advertising on television. Texas is a big state and it's expensive. And it is a traditionally red state. They haven't elected a Democratic statewide office holder since before the 21st century, right? Since like 1994. You've now got massive cases in Houston, the third largest city in the country, and Dallas. Now you've got Greg Abbott, who has tried his darndest to hew right along with Trump on this stuff, saying, I think this is actually a massive emergency, and I think we may have to shut down the city of Houston. And shutting down a city of three or four million people a second time is no small thing, not only for the people who are at risk of getting sick, but the economic fallout from that in a place that big that was so tenuous to begin with, especially probably in the service sector, is going to have a massive effect on you know the Texas economy, which is enormous in and of its own right. But this is going to happen over and over and over again. And so you're going to have to ask yourself, especially in these states like Florida also, where we're seeing things spike, is how long will Republican governors hold on to Trump, hoping that they don't get the mean tweet before they finally do their job and take care of their citizens? Yeah, you can't talk about the political impact without also talking about what we've already seen. The poll, his poll numbers are dropping and it can be directly connected to his weakness and incompetence in managing this. Don't forget one of the, the core constituencies for Donald Trump are elderly voters and who is really paying the most painful price for his incompetence on managing the pandemic is unfortunately elderly Americans. Yeah, they said that, you know, remember that Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor of Texas, said probably three weeks into this that, you know, if old people had to die to save the economy, that that, that was just how it was going to have to be. So I think that elderly voters rightfully took umbrage at sort of the conservative view of this, that you've had a good life, but now it's time for you to, you know, shuffle off that moral coil and, and save our jobs. Right. Exposing the inhumanity of not just Donald Trump in, when it comes to Republican leadership. While we're on this topic, Reed, last week we talked about Donald Trump's Tulsa rally before it had happened. And I want you to give everyone a summary of, first of all, everybody knows what we saw 
and the aftermath of that, because we can't talk about this slowdown in COVID-19 testing and what he said from that podium without talking about the rally itself and what a colossal failure it was. The issue for Trump and his campaign, aside from the humiliation, was it showed just how bad a campaign it is, you know, and how susceptible they were to trying to keep the boss happy with, uh, you know, 800,000, 900,000, a million tickets. You know, I don't know how much of the K-pop TikTok world was responsible for this, but let's say that they were responsible for 500,000 signups. Then, you know, the Trump campaign has 500,000 bad pieces of data in their database. They got to go dig through and figure that out. You know, the fact that they ratcheted up these expectations for the president and then it was a colossal failure and it was such a public failure with the stage outside and the empty seats and the, you know, the people yawning. And then, you know, he went on stage and for, was it 17, 20 minutes, whatever, you know, recapitulated his argument about how he really is healthy with the ramp and the, you know, the dramatic water drinking and tossing of the glass onto the stage. Yeah, it was a, it was a a reenactment reminiscent of something that, you know, you'd only come up with after three days, you know, in a fever dream. So I think that it's, it's one of those things where Trump is, it is core, a projectionist. So when he goes out and he does these things, trying to show people how strong he is or how capable he is, he's really doing it for his own benefit first and trying to convince himself. And so whether or not it was politically, whether or not it was operationally, whether or not it was logistically, the campaign failed spectacularly across the board. And the fact that some of these guys still have jobs is fascinating to me. Reed, really, it was Brad Pascal who failed spectacularly on this whole thing, right? I mean, what other, any political operative with any experience at all would have looked at the idea that they had a million tickets supposedly reserved and the light would have gone on in his head and say, wait, this is not right. We know better. We know this is not real. I mean, the fact that Brad Pascal still has a job, that is what I find most extraordinary about that rally. Ron, you you were talking about, or maybe Jennifer was talking about, you know, the testing thing where Trump says, slow the test down, please. And then the, the, the staff is like, oh, no, 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 no. He was kidding. And he's like, no, I wasn't. I mean, that's the impossibility of working for Donald Trump is that you can't, there's no possible way of predicting what it is he's going to do or what it is he's going to say. And then if they had not gone out and defended him, he would have been angry for not defending him. And then when he says, oh no, I I meant it, then they look like idiots and they just sort of have to grin and bear it. And so, you know, it's amazing to me that anybody will work for this guy. I'm curious to see what any, any of the three of you think about this, but what strikes me about this rally is that so many people forget about the the K-pop teens and and all of the all the tickets that were reserved intentionally for folks not to show up. There were a whole bunch of folks who actually did sign up with the Trump campaign who didn't show up, presumably because they don't want to get COVID. What stands out to me is just how disconnected, not just from reality, but from his own base, the president seems to be and the campaign seems to be in thinking that these people are going to want to go into an arena that half a million people even are going to want to go into this event to be in close contact with one another. And all he's concerned about is the numbers. It just, there's a disconnect there to me. And, And I wonder if you guys, what you think about that? I think it's really interesting. I wonder how many of those people who were actually planning to attend canceled their plans after they learned that six members of the president's advance team had tested positive for the coronavirus. And I've seen this a lot, frankly, with some friends and some old friends and other activists that are in my social media network. Suddenly, 
they're looking at things a little bit differently than they used to when it comes to Donald Trump, you know? And I see them saying things and taking actions that directly contradict their position on Donald Trump and COVID-19 numbers from even a couple of weeks ago. I do think that the spikes that we're seeing, that kind of the rebound of the, of the disease that we're seeing in parts of the country, especially in the South, are really starting to make people stop and think twice or hopefully three, four, five times. I think, you know, what we're seeing in New York and New Jersey now with the governors now kind of turning the tables on on some of the states in the South saying, if you come into our state, you now, you know, now you're going to, uh, you know, Florida and, and all of you other states uh, don't come to New York, don't come to New Jersey. I, I do think um, that you make a really good point, Ron, that this disconnect between the president and even his own base is what's being magnified as a result, again, of his mishandling of the coronavirus. And it's clearly, clearly costing him politically a great deal. All right. In our C block, we're going to talk about vote by mail. Trump continued his hysterics about mail-in voting this week in a tweet and in a speech he gave to conservative students in Arizona. Trump claimed that mail-in voting will lead to, quote, the most corrupt election in the history of our country, end quote. At the same time, Kentucky's Republican Secretary of State estimated record-breaking turnout in their Tuesday primaries, largely as a result of mail-in voting. Read, why is Trump so focused on mail-in voting, and is there a reason for people to be concerned? If I believed my worst instincts, it would be not because he understands how mail-in voting works, but because it is instinctually his own way of throwing sand in the gears of the legitimacy of an election this fall. And so I think that we saw this with his campaign against Clinton in 2016. And I think we'll see it more and more if his numbers continue to take a nosedive, which is he will further try and figure out how to make his core people believe that should he lose, whether or not it's close, which we hope not, or in a blowout, that somehow, you know, there was a there was a conspiracy to commit voter fraud on a massive scale more massive than anybody, A, could ever imagine, and B, frankly, anybody could ever organize. And so I think that that's what you're looking at is that this is, I don't know that he has a plan for it because the guy doesn't plan, but he knows he's headed for a, a pretty serious defeat. And so he's got to find a way, maybe not even for his supporters, but probably in his own mind to explain how he could possibly have lost. Jennifer, you've run a state party before and mail-in voting is sort of a staple in state party politics. Can you talk a little bit about, about this? It's such a crazy thing to me to listen to other current maybe state chairman or campaign operatives talk about, oh my God, mail-in ballots, what will we do? What will we do? First of all, I would point out that there are some states that have been doing mail-in voting for a long time. That's number one. But more importantly, every single person involved in politics knows one of the most important um, responsibilities of the state party is to execute the absentee ballot program, where we're set, making sure that we're contacting all those people who cannot or will not, you know, are not going to be showing up on election day, that they have a ballot and they mail it in. That's what mail-in voting is. That's what parties do. That is the organizational part of, of politics and elections and campaigns. So it's ludicrous now for the president and anybody in his operation to come out and say, no, we all know mail-in voting voting is fraudulent. You know, it's it's ridiculous. And it's just another case of this president completely fabricating something, giving it to his base and having his base say, okay, Trump said it. This is the truth. 
truth. Let's all go out and protest mail-in voting. And when it comes to ballot fraud, frankly, Trump used this back in the uh, in the 16 election too. Up here in New Hampshire, uh, when he did not win, I, I'd like to point out he did not win New Hampshire in 2016. He blamed it on busloads and busloads of Massachusetts voters coming across the line and voting in, you know, voting in in our, um, you know, in our districts. It doesn't happen. It isn't possible for it to happen. And anyone in a party operation who has ever been involved in ballot integrity and and executing a ground game to turn out the voters on election days, they know that it doesn't happen. It's again, this idea of conspiracy theories and being able to feed to people who are not familiar with the process, false information and get them riled up and and start believing that it must be true. It's not, it doesn't happen. Trump knows it and his team knows it. Yeah. It's just a giant lie. Voting by mail is actually perhaps the most secure form of voting because it's not subject to electronic manipulation. And People have to actually sign the envelope that seals their ballot in order for the ballot to be counted. It, 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 there's a perfect paper trail for it. And that goes back to the point that Reid was making. This isn't actually about election security. And it's actually, by the way, it's, it's actually going to potentially undermine Trump's own vote. Because as Jennifer says, both parties engage in vote by mail programs to encourage people who might not otherwise show up to the polls to vote by mail if they can't show up to the polls. And if you've got Republicans out there now, and we've seen this actually, we've seen video of this, making ceremoniously tearing up their absentee vote by mail voting applications, you're actually going to depress Republican turnout. Right. And that's just going to make the result right. even worse for him. Right. In Western Michigan, they were burning their absentee ballot applications. The Republicans were. And I'm sure whatever field staff they have in Michigan, you know, they're tearing what's left of their hair out because like those were locked in votes that those people now maybe they'll show up. Maybe they won't. Just to Jennifer's point about, well, you know, who knows what the the pandemic will look like in November. And now these folks have been like, well, I'm not going to go get sick at the polling place and I don't trust mail-in balloting, so I guess I'll just stay home. It's so completely irrational. Not only is it a tremendous lie, not only is it counterproductive for Trump's own cause for the reasons that Reid just said, the only reason you could imagine anyone doing it is he wants to undermine, as Reid says, the validity of the results. And it's not just that he wants to do it for public consumption. He needs to do it for his own psyche. Narcissists, extreme narcissists are the people who can't accept defeat. They're the ones who always say, if they lose, they're going to say, no matter what, you cheated. Somebody screwed me. And Trump instinctively knows he's going down. And that's why he's starting to say, everyone's cheating. They're screwing me. And that's what this is about. It's not just to lie to the American public, it's to lie to himself. And the danger is, one of the problems with vote by mail is it takes longer to count. And even if this is a significant victory for Joe Biden on November 3rd, it might take a couple of days to sort it all out. We might know from the exit polls that he wins by 10 or 12 points, but the fact of the matter is, the actual results aren't going to come out for a few days. And Guess who's going to be saying, if he thinks that, that he's lost, 
look at they can't even get the results. This is a fraud. This is all they're they're out. Yeah. This is a conspiracy. Yeah. Don't forget that for decades, the only way that our military votes is by mail-in voting. So when the, when Trump talks about mail-in voting, it's it's invalid. I mean, what is what is he really saying? Military around the world, U.S. military members have always voted by mail-in ballot. You can sort of be exasperated. Just hear what he says, see what he does, and say one more reason why I'm going to go vote. Right. Yes. Yes. One more reason why I'm getting out to the poll. After three years of this, like, there's no reason to like you know spin yourself up into a tizzy every time he does it. What it should do is like build additional desire for all of us to work as hard as we can, including everyone listening to this right now, to make sure that they vote, their friends vote, their families vote. You know how we know it's irrational? Because he's doing this in a place like Michigan, where only won by 11,000 votes to begin with. Well, if 11,000 Trump voters burn their absentee ballot applications, like, all right, he's now at zero. Where's he going right. to go from there? Probably yeah. not up. Yeah. And so right. I think, you know, all of this stuff he does, he also knows that the the follow-on effect is to get his opponents spun up to such a way that they don't see clearly. That's that's his his magic power and all this is throwing out the bright shiny objects. And so, you know, if we want to do this the right way, say, of course he's doing this. This is why he's doing it. Here's what we're going to do to ensure that on election day, you know, Biden wins 340 electoral votes or whatever the heck it is, and like even Trump's closest people are like, "Mr. President, you got to go." Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, George, but Trump himself will actually be submitting a mail-in ballot to Florida. Is that right? Yeah, I I assume so. Although he apparently in violation of law or in violation of a contract, put Mar-a-Lago as his home address. And apparently he's not allowed either under local statute or an agreement that he signed when he created Mar-a-Lago or established it as a Trump facility, he's not allowed to use any, have anyone use that as a place of residence. So wow. <laughs> classic Donald Trump, wow. classic Donald Trump, he, <laughs> he's, he, he's voting by mail and he may not be doing it legally. God help us. When you are burning your own ballot to own the libs, Jennifer, this weekend, what story are you going to be watching coming up, coming into, going into the next week? First, to be very clear, not burning my ballot. <laughs> my vote will be counted. I can assure you of that. Um, you know what? The story that I'm kind of following that's been developing, obviously, for several weeks now, but I think it's kind of taken a, 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 a new turn. There was a great story, I think it was two days ago in the New York Times by Maggie Haberman and Jonathan Martin on how this president is campaigning on race. Not campaigning against race, campaigning on race. Mm. I find it so disturbing, and I think it's going to develop and expand much further than than it has already. And and I, I encourage folks to go find that story and read it. Um, that we have in the White House a president of the United States of America, the person who is supposed to be the leader of the free world. You know, the beacon toward toward equality and opportunity and freedom for all, who is building a reelection campaign intentionally on the strategy of racial division, racism, racist triggers, defending and upholding the Confederacy. You can go through the long list using the most insulting and racist of terms uh, as he talks about the the tragedies and the crises that we are facing, you know, in the world today. And this is this is his campaign strategy 
This is his intentional message. When was the last time, you know, and I, I don't know how far back you'd have to go, read you are a better historian than I am on some of those kinds of details. When was the last time we had a candidate for president of the United States running as, hey, I'm the most racist guy in the pack, vote for me? 1968, George Wallace. There you go. There you go. Maybe 72. He, yeah. I think he ran twice. Although Strom Thurmond uh, ran uh, in 1948 as a Dixiecrat and won most of the Confederacy. So, And I would make the point before we move on really quickly too that people are going to say, oh, he's not racist. He'll tell you, I'm the least racist person in the world. And they try to say, well, his intention is this or he's just saying that. No, that's bull. Excuse me. That's you know what. And because I don't care what Donald Trump thinks is, you know, wants us to believe is in his heart. If he is taking these racist actions and using this racist strategy and doing it intentionally, and he somehow believes in his heart he's not racist, then that's even worse. Then that is even worse. It's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. This goes back to Lindsey Graham's defense of Trump after he said that those four non-white members of Congress should go back to their countries. Here's what Lindsey Graham said. He said, oh, that's not racist in substance. He said, it's really Trump's narcissism more than anyone else. And at first that sounds kind of like it might be true because he, he will love a black person who says that he's great and he's a, he's a stable genius. And that person, he will say the kindest, nicest things about that one. For somebody he sees a black person who's critical of him, that person he'll call dumb as a rock, like he did with at least one television commentator. If you were to say, if you were to have someone who called these people the N-word, if they liked you and nothing, and, and the wonderful people, if they don't like you, that's still racist. And what he does all the time are things that are racist. Like what he said with the congresswoman. When I was a kid, I was in a supermarket parking lot with my mother. And, so, and she got into some kind of a verbal dispute with some other woman who didn't like where she parked or something. And that woman said to my mother, go back to your country. Okay, my mother, a naturalized American citizen who has a son who was born in the country. That's what she said. That's what that woman said. And then when I was, when I was a kid, you know, I'm half Filipino. So I was lumped in with other Asian races or or nationalities and kids would say I was Chinese and they would make, they would do the things that would mock Chinese speaking in a fake Chinese tongue or saying Kung Fu this, Kung Fu that. And this is what the president of the United States is doing 45 years later. In the 21st century, the president of the United States who is supposed to represent us all in this pluralistic nation is saying that. I got a text the other day from a Los Angeles lawyer who told me about how upset his 13-year-old adopted daughter from China felt about this. This is what he's doing. He is engaging in schoolyard taunts of people and things on the basis of race. That's That's the president we have. And the reason why he's doing it, it doesn't matter whether he's doing it of malice against people of a particular race or not. 
I mean, granted, he loves President Xi. We know that. But he is doing it because he gets a spin. He gets to spin up the crowd. And that's it. That is his narcissism at play, as Lindsey Graham has said. But that doesn't make it any less racist. Reed, what's the story you're going to be watching this week? So this week, Senator John Thune, who I believe is the Republican whip in the United States Senate, said publicly that maybe it would be good for Donald Trump to change his strategy and his tone uh, because it was making it very difficult for other Republicans. I'm interested to see how that works out for both Senator Thune and for a lot of these, you know, endangered senators who, you know, have gone, as we talked about earlier in the show, have talked, you know, gone totally silent on on what the president's been up to. But I think also, as we noted, you know, with like Governor Abbott in Texas, there's a lot of these Republicans for whom it's taken 120,000 dead Americans plus and growing and 40 million Americans out of work and racist dog whistles and, you know, cops beating people up in the streets and Trump sort of egging it on for them to start to say, oh, well, maybe this is just too far. It's going to be interesting to see over the coming days and weeks how some of these Republican senators make the decision whether or not they're going to stick with them all the way down you know, to the bottom of the ocean, like Martha McSally in Arizona has already clearly chosen to do. Or if you're going to see some of these folks like a Susan Collins or a Tom Tillis or a Joni Ernst in Iowa who are going to say, you know what, like, I'm not going to win. I can't win with them and I might not win without them. You know, maybe I've got a better chance this way. Who knows? But all I'm saying is I think that you're starting to see some fissures in the the Trump iceberg. And it'll be interesting to see how both other Republicans react to that and how Trump reacts to that, because we know that, you know, they've all feared the mean tweet for three and a half years. What these people are going to do is they're going to try to have it both ways, because that's their instinct. They're going to say, I'm an independent Republican, and they're going to try to not talk about Trump without saying anything bad about Trump. That's what they're going to do. And it's not going to work. It's laughable. Reed, when you talk about what exactly what John Thune said, it's laughable. And to your point that they're saying it now, a few months before the election, after over three and a half years. No, nobody's going to buy it. Nobody's going to buy it. These are not people of strong character. Right. Or, or, Or apparently strong strategic thinking. George, going into this coming week, what story are you going to be watching? Well, I think the story that we have to watch is the scary story of coronavirus. I think that's going to be back again. I mean, these numbers that we're starting to see in terms of infections and ICU admissions, this is just terrifying. And when you compare the numbers, and I think we posted some of them on Twitter, compared to other nations, it's just been a tremendous failure, a failure to the extent that the Europeans don't want to let Americans back into the European bloc. We're going to see a spike. I, I don't. I, there's no way around it until we have another lockdown. And because the irony is the president wanted to open everything up, he wanted never to close it. He was accusing the Democrats of of, of engaging in a big hoax because they were worried about the, the virus. And then he said that they were trying to destroy the country, at least as late as March 9th, he was saying this. They want to destroy the country by having shutting everything down and not having face-to-face meetings. Because of his failures in his attempt to avoid reality, we've extended the reality. We've extended the hard reality. We've caught, he's caused more economic harm, more deaths by trying to deny it. But that's what Donald Trump does. And that's going to be the story back in the news again. He's done it to all of us and he's doing it to himself. 
it's terrifying. While all this is going on, there's a less publicized story that I want to throw into the mix that folks should check out, which is the Atlantic article that was published on the 22nd by Ann Applebaum, who's a staff writer there. The headline is, The Voice of America Will Sound Like Trump. And this is about a, like I said, a a less covered story about what seems to be Steve Bannon interfering in the operations of the U.S. Global Agency for Media, or U.S. Agency for Global Media, which houses Voice of America, Radio Free Asia, Radio Free Europe, and these other radio stations that date back to the Cold War that were used to rally the troops and embody democratic principles in authoritarian countries. It's a really alarming story, and I won't, I won't go into detail here, but anyone listening who's concerned about democratic norms and the use of, of government-funded media operations for potentially nefarious ends should check this out. An Atlantic article, The Voice of America Will Sound Like Trump. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.